Genesis 21 uh, today. As we go through the book of Genesis, learning a lot about what God is doing. This is a long passage, and we're going to read it uh, as we go through it. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. Lord, as we study your word this morning, I pray we would learn from the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael, that we would learn enough about your sovereign rule over our lives, that our faith would be strengthened, even when and especially when our lives seem so difficult and complicated. Reveal yourself to us by your spirit and through your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever really wanted something really, really badly and waited a long time for it to happen? Only discover that when it did, things didn't work out quite the way you thought they would. Most of us have had that kind of experience uh, at least once in our lives, and some of us have been down that road many, many times. Perhaps you spent years saving money to buy a house, only to discover the foundation is cracked and the wood has termites. Or you finally got that new job you were dreaming of, and six months later you lost it because the company was downsizing. Perhaps you prayed for a mate and later wished you had waited longer and prayed harder. <clears throat> you got married and found out he really wasn't perfect. And then he found out the same thing about you. <clears throat> Or you finally got accepted at that college you really wanted to go to only to discover you didn't have enough money to go there. Or you got there and discovered you couldn't stand your roommates. Or you were really homesick and you just hated it from the first day. After many years of waiting, you were finally able to have kids and then you discovered that parenting is really hard work. Or your friend wanted to go into business with you and wound up double-crossing you in the end. The longer you wait for something, the greater the possibility for disappointment. And as you wait, you begin to think about how good things are going to be when you finally get what you want, when your dream finally comes true. And if you wait long enough, your expectations will be so high that you will almost inevitably be disappointed because nothing could ever be that good. And as difficult as it is to deal with disappointment, we can learn some positive lessons when disappointment comes our way. Disappointment teaches us humility. It turns our focus away from the world and back to God. It teaches us to appreciate what we already have. And it liberates us from the bondage of having to have our own way. Disappointment's a natural and normal part of life. The Scottish preacher George Morrison said, the Christian life is a land of hills and valleys. And King Solomon expressed the same thought when he said in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Every hill has a valley next to it. This is particularly true of family life because people closest to us can also bring us the most joy and the most sorrow. Our homes can be happy one day and sad the next. And things can change so quickly. In our study of the life of Abraham, we have come to an event. We've come to a day 
that should bring only joy to Abraham and Sarah. But while the birth of Isaac brings joy, it also brings its share of pain and sorrow. Our text contains three parts today, and each one has valuable lessons for all of us to consider. And we're going to start at the beginning in chapter 21, verse 1, with the grace of a promise kept. The grace of a promise kept. This account opens on a soaring note, starting at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah's pregnancy uh, at the time was certainly the most celebrated of all pregnancies. She's pregnant at 90 with baby number one. It was, of course, initially her secret. And then she informed, uh, I imagine, Abraham in hushed excitement. Did Sarah at first try to hide her pregnancy uh, in the camp? She may well have been too sick to hide anything. Besides this, they lived in uh, what was essentially a tent city. My guess is in that type of environment, everyone knew everything. Sarah went on to that initial radiance that seems to mark pregnant women, and then on to the reality of discomfort that most pregnancies bring. I imagine all the preparations had been made long before her labor began at four score and ten years. And when the baby's cry rose across the camp, there were tears and festive shouts that everyone's going to remember for a long time. God had been faithful to his word. This is stressed three times in the first two verses so that we won't miss it. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, approximately 25 years have passed since God first spoke to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans. During that time, Abraham's had many adventures, many spiritual ups and downs. Sometimes he fervently believed God, and sometimes he doubted. Time and again, God appeared to him to remind him of his promise. And I'm sure Abraham often wondered why God was taking so long to keep his word. Let the story of Isaac's birth remind you of this truth. God is never early and God is never late. Say that again. God is never early and God is never late. He's not in a hurry and he doesn't work according to your timetable. Not for Abraham, not for you, not for me. 
Specifically, God had told Abraham earlier, a year earlier, that Sarah would bear a son within a year, and he was to name the son Isaac. That comes to us in Genesis 17, when God reaffirmed his promise, Genesis 17, 21. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And Abraham had laughed at this revelation with somewhat of an incredulous belief. Sarah laughed too. She overheard the second assertion that she would give birth within a year. We saw that in Genesis 18. But now both Abraham and Sarah know that God has been faithful in every detail of his word. The birth of Isaac is a precise empirical validation of God's promise. A 90-year-old mother, the only 90-year-old nursing mother in history, as far as I know, and her baby boy bears proud evidence of God's faithfulness. Thus, here in Genesis, we get a sampling of what's been the experience for all of God's people. God is true to his word. Jesus would declare in Matthew 5, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That solemn declaration comes from the one who is himself the yes to all the promises of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. This means that you and I can and must Trust every syllable of God's word. That's the way every Christian's meant to live, in the deepest trust of all of God's word, just as Jesus lived. And the depth of Abraham's joyous belief is immediately evident in the naming and circumcising of the child, starting at verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. This divinely given name, Isaac, means laughter. The name recalls the initial disbelief of his parents that a son would be born to them within a year. That earlier account says Genesis 17 Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And God had countered that by further informing him that his son's name would be Isaac. Again, in Genesis 17, now verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Laughter. How'd you like to grow up with the name Laughter? Hey, what's your name? My name's Dave. Laughter. Yeah. No, really. He had a whole life of that. And since the name Isaac means laughter, I think this just seems that God is having the last laugh, so to speak. 
But next, Sarah heard that she was going to give birth within a year, and she laughed too. And that, if you remember, brought a divine challenge in Genesis 18. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. And their son, laughter, is coming. And now new mother, Sarah, is giving this joyous utterance as the form of a song, starting at verse 6, here in our text. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. You could translate, God has made Isaac for me. Everyone who hears will Isaac over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So there is laughter everywhere. This old man and his wife laughed and continued to laugh as they held their baby, their tiny baby, laughter in their arms. Baby Isaac cooed and laughed. The whole camp laughed out loud. Heaven smiled. The true heir of the Abrahamic covenant has been born. Isaac is the first person reported to have been circumcised at birth. His spiritual destiny is therefore separate from that of Ishmael, who was circumcised at age 13. And grace rained down on Abraham and his people. God had kept his word. They had obeyed and their hearts sang. And their faith goes even deeper. Now from the beginning, Abraham had believed God. That's why he left Ur. And later gave Lot his choice of the land. Then went after the kings of the north uh, when they had kidnapped Lot. But now Abraham is ascending to such a level of unwavering belief that God would keep his word, that later Abraham would be willing to sacrifice his laughter, his Isaac. But in the meantime, he has to sacrifice his other son, Ishmael. And so here we see the grace of separation. The grace of separation, starting at verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. It said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. 
And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So now what happens, predictably, with the rise of uh, baby Isaac's star, the demise of Ishmael's airship soon follows. Isaac's name appears three times in Genesis 21. Ishmael's name never appears once, even though he's a central subject and a main character. By verse 8, we know at least three years have passed because that's the traditional time for weaning a child in ancient Israel. Isaac's a toddler. And Ishmael's now about 16 years old. Tellingly, the account contains a new instance of laughter because the word laughing is actually an intensive form of Isaac's name, the verb to laugh. And so here, it's more like mocking. Here, Ishmael, firstborn, but not Abraham's heir, laughs at Isaac. And as Moses recorded this, again, starting at verse 8, and the child, Isaac, grew and was weaned. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And here the mocking, which is actually translated in the NIV, I think it rightly catches the malicious sense of laughter. And we know that because later on, Paul tells us that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Galatians 4.29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. So also it is now. And Ishmael's mocking laughter doesn't suggest violence. But Sarah imagines the sort of ominous trajectory and proportions to which this mocking laughter could go. However, there's simply no reason for thinking that Sarah is acting righteously here. She has no affections for Hagar and Ishmael, even though they've now been part of the family for years. Nor did she seem to care all that much about what had happened to them. They get sent out to the wilderness in Beersheba. At that day and that time, that's essentially a death sentence. Wilderness isn't, you know, forest and woods like we have. It's desert, and it's not sandy desert, it's rocky desert. It's, it's heat and rock. And most people that went out there simply died there. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that Sarah's a noble woman, and her instincts were sound, but her actions at this time are far from noble. She wouldn't tolerate any possible sharing of the inheritance. She wanted this problem uprooted and cast away. Starting at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. See, God wanted to protect Isaac because he's the promised seed of Abraham. That's the reason that God gives. As long as Ishmael remains in the house, he's a threat to God's plan. So he has to go, even though it means hardship 
and deep sorrow. And even though he and Hagar may have never understood why it happened, I'm sure they felt rejected by Sarah and Abraham, as indeed they were. Abraham, of course, is distressed as well. Ishmael was his son. And up to now, uh, up until a few years ago, he'd been the sole focus of his fatherly love until the arrival of Isaac. And what incredible heartache he must have felt. So God's intervention must have been welcomed by him. Abraham's breaking heart is comforted by the promise that great futures awaited for both of his boys. Isaac's the one through whom the promise would be realized, and Ishmael would father a great nation. Both boys have extraordinary futures ahead of them. But as you look at this story, it's sobering to realize that once Abraham sends Ishmael away, he never saw him again. I asked the guys in the high school Sunday school class, about half of whom are right around 16. I said, okay, you're 16, time to go. Just walk out of the house, don't look back. Just keep going. He said, how does that make you feel? They're like, that's terrible. I don't want to do that. You know, I mean, they just had all these questions. You don't get any of your questions answered. Just walk out the door, keep walking, see ya. You never get to see any of your family again, your parents, brothers, sisters, nothing. Take a hike, keep going. I said, you got to put yourself in the story to see how difficult this is. You know, Ishmael disappears. And after this chapter, we only hear of him in, in passing. He shows up very few times. As far as we know, this deep rupture in the family is never repaired. Sarah and Hagar never become friends. And the only time Isaac and Ishmael ever meet again is when they bury Abraham. But the differences between the sons of Abraham would turn out to be very significant. Later on in the Bible, we read about these nations rising up against Israel. Psalm 83, they say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites. The descendants of Ishmael and Hagar would become the enemies of Israel. Now we've seen that before. The children of Lot's daughters would become Moab and Ammon, enemies of Israel. If you go through uh, Noah's children and those lines, you'll find enemies of Israel. In the ancient Near East, they're all related. When they go to battle, it's family, it's cousins. You have to understand that the differences between Ishmael and Isaac are simply more than being competitive brothers. Their relationship is vested with great spiritual significance. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman, <coughs> excuse me, shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, Hagar, but of the free woman, 
Sarah. So Paul is writing in Galatians 4. And this isn't the first or last time we see God separate families in order to preserve the line of promise. We saw it with the line of Seth. We saw it with the line of Noah. We see it with Abraham and Lot. We see it, we'll see it even more with Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, and even finally in the end, the sons of Joseph. Over and over and over again, God forces division and separation in order to put people in positions where they have to follow him where they have to choose righteousness, where the line of promise is protected, sometimes at great cost. So what is God doing here? The sad reality is that God is graciously addressing the mess that Abraham and Sarah created because they took things into their own hands. The great commentator Griffith Thomas once wrote, God was taking up the tangled threads of his servant's life weaving them into his own divine pattern and overruling everything for good. Another theme we see in Genesis, that's God's way. That would be later realized in the life of Joseph when he finally addresses his brothers at the end of the book in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be saved as they are today. The truth is, without affliction and hardship, we would be trivial, superficial, one-dimensional beings. People without depth or substance, with shallow faith. And that's a life-changing revelation when you take it to heart. God works in and through the ups and downs of life to mature our faith. Hagar and Ishmael's bleak departure the next morning with only Abraham saying goodbye. And then there, what appears to be a tragic end in the desert as Ishmael lies dying a bow shot away from his uh, distraught mother, turns out to be a prelude to divine grace. Ishmael, like Isaac after him, is saved by a sudden voice from heaven. Verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Uplift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God promises an awesome future to the boy. A great nation would come through him. He informs Hagar of a well of water, a well of salvation close by, and God declared himself, verse 20, to be with him. Specific graces have fallen. The separation left Isaac free to pursue the promise of the land and the call to a special relationship with God a necessary grace. God's protecting hand rested on Ishmael. From then on, he pursued a life separate and distinct and, and distant from the patriarchs. But it was also grace. And there's grace upon Abraham's soul as God is preparing him for the ultimate act of faith when he have to offer up Isaac on Mount Moriah. But God brings one more grace into Abraham's life before this chapter ends. And that's the grace of reconciliation. The grace of reconciliation. This chapter ends with another meeting between Abraham and Abimelech. The encounters with Abimelech recorded earlier in chapter 20, which Jeff taught you about last week. Here in chapter 21 serves as a bookend to this whole section. In the first encounter, Abraham sort of disgraced himself. 
But now he stands tall and respected as Abimelech seeks his favor. Starting at verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and, and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham said, Seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now Abraham has risen from disgrace to having this positive witness for God. The Philistines' observation that God is with you says it all. And Abraham, in response to his request, swore what is essentially a non-aggression pact. Abraham has now set the God is with you standard that would become the standard of all the patriarchs. We see it with Isaac in Genesis 26, where it says we see plainly the Lord has been with you. We'll see it with Jacob in Genesis 30, where it says the Lord has blessed me because of you. We'll see it with Joseph in Genesis 39. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Because the Lord is with him, Abraham has a new sense of confidence. He's no longer timid or evasive in dealing with royalty. And thus Abraham put Abimelech's non-aggression proposal to the test by charging that Abimelech's servants were stealing one of his wells. The result is this Treaty of Beersheba, which Abraham acknowledged the well, or Abimelech acknowledged the well to be Abraham's by receiving seven of Abraham's lambs and making a solemn oath. And then he goes back to his own people in peace. And Abraham, picking up at verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. It demonstrates, planting the tree demonstrates Abraham's de determination to plant himself in the land where indeed he stayed many days. And the title Everlasting God as a divine designation is unique in the Bible. El Olam. It doesn't appear in any other uh, ancient writings of this time. And Abraham's use of it has to do with the eternal nature of all the events in this chapter. And in fact, all these chapters. Specifically, Isaac's birth and the covenant relationship that would be everlasting. Abraham's God was the everlasting one whose will for man cannot be thwarted. You have this awesome view of God is now going to inform all of Abraham's uh, dealings. And it's this understanding that's going to get tested in his offering up of Isaac. We have seen grace in the birth of Isaac. 
grace in the departure of Ishmael, and grace in the treaty of Beersheba. But God isn't nearly done with Abraham yet, just as he isn't done with any of us yet. Like Abraham, we could all use some more grinding and polishing. There's a lot of that in Abraham's life where God is constantly testing him, refining him, grinding away the lack of faith, polishing away the impurities. At the end of the Old Testament, there's two prophets who talk about God is going to refine his people. One of them is Zechariah, who says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. And then in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we read, again, a relationship of God to his people. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This grinding and polishing, this refining of old Abraham has been going on now for years. The frictions of adversity have polished his soul and it's becoming brilliant. And in time, it's going to dazzle us with divine light. But what about us? We're not quite like Abraham. I love the writer Frederick Beekner. It's spelled B-U-E-C-H-N-E-R, but it's pronounced Beekner. I don't know why. But he writes this. I thought this was great. We believe in God, such as it is, we have faith. We work and goof off. We love and dream. We have wonderful times and awful times, are cruelly hurt and hurt others cruelly, get mad and bored and scared stiff and ache with desire, do all such human things as these. And if our faith is not mainly just window dressing or a rabbit's foot or fire insurance, it's because it grows out of precisely this kind of rich human compost. I love that quote. What Beekner is saying is that faith doesn't grow in this protected greenhouse where everything's controlled, but out in these unpredictable climates of life. And when we believe and step out in faith to follow Christ, we step into a process in real life, in space and time under the sovereign direction of God a process that's meant to pour repeated mercies and graces into our life, which will then make us more and more able to rest everything on Jesus and to live more for his glory. That's true throughout the Bible. That's certainly true in Abraham's life. It's true in the life of all of the great characters of the Bible. It's true for Jacob, scheming grasping Jacob, who after wrestling with God in Genesis 32 was a changed man whom God renamed Israel. It's true for Moses, who fled into the desert after killing an Egyptian, spent 40 years in the wilderness, only emerging to lead Israel as a man who, as Numbers 12 says, was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. In the New Testament, we see it with every major character in the Bible. Uh, the Apostle Peter, great confidence in his own abilities, declared to Christ, John 13, I will lay down my life for you. But then after his failure, denying Christ three times, 
eventually came great faith, which was displayed from Pentecost on to his own death. The Apostle Paul's name originally was Saul, after Israel's proud warrior king. But following his conversion, he was renamed Paul, which means small, as a witness to what the gospel had taught him. What's true for Abraham? What's true for Jacob? What's true for Moses? And true for, for Peter and Paul? It's true for us. Our calling, like those who've gone before us, is to submit to the grinding and the polishing for what it is. Because even in the refining, even in the adversity, it's still the grace of God coming and making us like his son. In the end, it's a sign that God is still working in your life. And for that, you should probably thank him. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.